0: Hello, everyone. I'm Alan Mellish, Director of Events and Online Content at the Human Capital Institute, and this is 9 to Thrive HR, your source for education, expertise, and knowledge on all things talent. This episode of 9 to Thrive is brought to you by the good people at Workday. Workday is the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. Learn more about them and all they have to offer at Workday.com. Today, my guest is Senior Vice President, People and Performance Evangelist at Workday, Greg Pryor. Greg, welcome to Nine to Thrive.
1: Alan, thanks so much for for letting me join you. The pleasure is all ours. So, Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself and your
0: role at Workday and exactly what it means to be a people and performance evangelist.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks so much. So I have actually been at Workday for nearly seven years. I am uh, my my whole career a human capital practitioner uh, for more than 30 years. Um, And I have been part of what we call uh, people and purpose at Workday, Uh, the the artist formerly known as HR, if you will. And I I probably have sort of directionally three roles. Uh, One is uh, waking up every morning and uh, 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 helping ensure that our nearly 12,000 workmates are having a remarkable experience. Uh, second is getting the incredible privilege and pleasure to spend lots of time with our customers around the world and not only sharing a bit of the what we call the workday on workday or wow story, but just connecting and seeing how we can support them. And then uh, the third element is, is I have the uh, opportunity to spend lots of time with thought leaders. In uh, in the world of human capital, so whether that's uh, folks like uh, my friend friend Amy Edmondson at at Harvard, uh, Rob Cross at Babson, uh, Michael Bush at the Great Place to Work Institute, so I, I sort of swirl those three ideas uh, together.
0: So that's really interesting that you uh, that you live in so many different worlds. I guess in your role, um, what kind of conversations are you having with HR and facilities leaders in navigating? your return to office strategy, a lot of people, you know, as we know, it's COVID times right now, but there's, you know, COVID is not the same in say Minneapolis as it is in Rome, Italy, as it is in someplace in China. So it's probably evolving and you've got to take a lot of factors into, uh, into account depending on where you are in the world. So talk to us a little bit about how your conversations with those folks are, are evolving.
1: Absolutely, you know, Alan could not be more true. I was I was with a group of CHROs uh, from South Africa a few weeks ago. We were doing an event, and um, uh, you know, while this is a, a statement that's become sort of popular, uh, a CHRO for one of the largest financial services company in South Africa, you know, shared this with the group. She said, clearly, while we're all in the same storm, we're in very different boats. And to your point, uh, you know, could not be more different, our experience for our workmates in New Zealand versus New York on a whole variety of fronts. And so the importance of sort of, if you will, meeting people where they are, um, understanding local context, um, I think, you know, (laughs) Has always been important, but now is more important than ever. And you know, as we look at data and some of the other things, to be able to understand, uh, you know, the very different context. Uh, uh, where are we having hot zones still? You know, unfortunately, from a disease. What are urban versus suburban uh, areas look like? And then, to your point, you add the the global context. Uh, you know, the ability to have a breath, a sense of what's happening in sentiment across all of those dimensions. Uh, I don't think has ever been more important than today.
0: Yeah. And
1: and you think it's
0: not just looking at the sort of the caseloads, the all of that important epidemiological data is going to be important in kind of evaluating the options on the table. But then also, as I think you were starting to hint at looking at the the, the local sentiment in, among different populations of employees around, you know, um, how nervous or uh, how anxious are people about uh, returning to work, even if you know some people in the back room with a green eye shade kind of look at things and say, yeah, we could start uh, opening up the office and having people come back in. You have to also take into account the, what people are thinking on the ground in terms of you know, I don't know if I would feel comfortable going back into the office just yet because my elderly mother lives with us or that Absolutely. kind of thing. So,
1: Absolutely. There are so many dimensions, Alan, to your point, you know, as we look at it and we just got an amazing team who's able to look at that. But you look at the types of commuting. Um, do people need to or typically take uh, mass transit? Do you have elevators in those buildings? Do you have common areas? Gosh, you know, we're looking and capturing things like do we have enough PPE for a certain amount of the workforce, and so you've got all of these dimensions that are coming in at the same time. I think most importantly, to your point, um, people's interest, uh, both their need and ability. And, and now, as we likely get back into uh, scenarios where uh, we have uh, children going back to school and other childcare scenarios, you know, you add that on, and people are just in a very, very different context. You have, you know, literally hundreds of points to your point that you need to consider almost each one unique, uh, to a particular location.
0: Yeah. And so just as, um, individuals and families are kind of looking to game things out and scenario plan a little bit, uh, what role is scenario planning happening at the corporate level at the organizational level for you?
1: Yeah, no. And I think, you know, um, you know, especially in times of uncertainty, and we're clearly all in a space where, you know, there is no playbook written for any of this. Um, we we couldn't have even imagined, given as I mentioned earlier that that broad context. Scenario planning couldn't be more important. The ability to to take all this data in and almost on a daily, definitely a weekly and monthly um, perspective, be able to look and say, well, what is happening in the world? Uh, I, I can't imagine. I mean, at least I'm not smart enough to hold all of these ideas in my in my head to know all of this context, and then as well to engage local uh, leaders in this context. And so the amount of stakeholders that you have now involved in these scenarios is, is so much more than before. The amount of data points that you have and so you know, I, gosh, I can't imagine a, a more important time to have scenario planning and to particularly using technology to scenario plan, crunch all that data for you, give you a perspective, and then so important to then layer the human judgment on top of that. Um, but, you know, we're we're big believers in this idea of sort of prediction machines. Uh, three uh, economists out of Toronto wrote a wonderful book in that context. We're big fans of that. But let the machine learning, let the machines crunch this data, because machines do that well, and then let humans do what humans do well, which is to put that human judgment. So we really like to think about automating and augmenting uh, using things like scenario planning and specifically technology, and then elevating those essential human components on top of that from a, from a human perspective. Couldn't, couldn't be a more important time to have strong scenario planning capabilities, I, I believe, than today.
0: First of all, I want to say I like the idea of the let's let the machines do what the machines are good at doing um, and let the humans do, you know, augment what humans can do, you know, give people better data, better analysis. But then it's still people making the decision at the end of the day. And then and then, too, I was just it just occurred to me as you were talking, one of the kind of freeing things about scenario planning that. You know, where you're looking at three or five different options, or whatever, however many options you're looking at, what the future may present to you. I think there's something freeing about the mental exercise of saying, okay, we're not going to get to a right answer. We're not going to look in a crystal ball and say, okay, this is, I can watch on a movie screen exactly how this is going to happen. And now I just have to do that. Um, It's more about saying what could happen. And if, a couple of if we can think of, think through a couple of plausible scenarios for this really important question we're trying to answer now we can start like even if it doesn't scenario 4 doesn't precisely happen we have something we have a plan in place for something that looks roughly akin to scenario 4 and we know we're not dealing with scenario 3
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there was a great not to geek out too much on this, but, you know, Peter Schwartz many, many years ago wrote a wrote a great book on this idea um, and really used the the work, gosh, back probably in the early 70s of um, uh, Ari Degas. And, uh, you know, they were doing scenario planning specifically around um, oil and oil shortages and a whole variety of things. And they laid out in that original work, just to your point, not that you have to know every little piece, but broadly, what could be possible Broadly, how do you then think about if you've got highly probable, high impact uh, uh, scenarios? Do you have a directional plan for that? And you know, uh, one of the great stories in, in in Schwartz's book there was the OPEC oil embargo. And, um, uh, you know, it happened to be about Shell where Ari Degas had done that scenario planning and and they were prepared. They said, if there is a an, an oil embargo, a probable high impact event, what would we do? And they uh, created a plan that, that they sort of had on a shelf. And then when that scenario unfolded, they were already prepared. They had already, you know, had a sense in a clear minded way of how they would react. No, I can't, again, I can't, at least I've been working for 30 years um, no more important time than to be doing that type of work right now.
0: Absolutely. Uh, love that love that background context on really sort of a, an interesting story. And I think that that whole industry or industries like it are really a, a great um, source of insight and information, even if it's not a, precisely on talent issues, these issues of planning where they have to look into the future really far ahead because they're looking at, OK, if we're going to go into this oil field or that, you know, if we're going to work with this country or that country, there's a whole, because you're making such impactful long-term investments, you kind of can't afford to, um, uh, to, to play it by ear as you might in, a, in another industry.
1: You're getting that data in real time. You're looking for those weak signals and you're adjusting your plans. That's where we are today. Yeah. And so important uh, because those weak signals or in some cases strong signals are changing so, so frequently um, given, the, given the uncertainty in the world.
0: And uh, in thinking about um, trying to develop more of that understanding of your workforce, trying to determine what pieces of data or what metrics are going to be signals uh, rather than sources of noise, what are you you looking at right now? What do you think in general are some of the more important data points that you need to um, have confidence in that you're getting accurate information so that you can track them and keep an eye on things that are really going to be a good source of information for making these kinds of decisions.
1: Yeah. No, I think uh, to your point, from an employee sentiment perspective, we are really focused and, and, and we are so lucky and grateful. We have an amazing people analytics team uh, led by my good friend, Phil Wilburn, uh, and they're really looking at three things very intentionally and very thoughtfully. And I would say that's around the well-being of our workforce. Um, which is increasingly important, and that's uh, not only the the physical well being, but the mental well being. Uh, as as we continue to see ourselves in this situation, I think the second is around productivity. Um, how are people feeling from a productivity perspective? How do we continue to get a sense of how we can support them to continue to be productive? What can we do for our people leaders to support that productivity? And then the third area, increasingly, you know, not only are we in a a global health crisis, but we're also uh, in a global social crisis. And so how do people feel a sense of belonging as well? And that's across ethnic backgrounds, that's across gender. Um, But, you know, we we really need to make sure that the social distancing that our remote work does not lead to social disconnection and so do people continue to feel a sense of uh, a sense of belonging so i would say well-being productivity and belonging from an employee sentiment perspective remain uh, at least the top three for us. And and I think important for everyone to continue to understand. We, uh, you know, as, as you and I have talked about in the past, we actually have been for a number of years pulsing our entire company. Every Friday is what we call Feedback Friday. And so we've had a sense now for a number of years, we've given that listening uh, mechanism to our workforce. We have now expanded that or pivoted that capability as well, not only to understand the employee experience, but now to include uh, well-being, productivity, productivity. And sense of belonging. And then we can act uh, very quickly. Uh, In fact, some of the things that we see is we can be really pinpointed. So we saw that there were 11 locations and 33 teams specifically that were struggling in the early days of of the remote work scenario. And so we were able to more surgically deploy resources to support them in particular, um, as opposed to trying to, you know, spread resources or boil the ocean.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I think the uh, really trying to surface some of the potential problem areas because some people might, you know, some areas of the company the work might lend itself more easily to working remotely, whereas uh, whereas others it's a little bit hard of a transition, or just the people in those roles are having a tougher time because they haven't worked from home for an extended period of time before. So doing those, I guess it's a weekly pulse of the uh, of the workforce and then being able to react quickly when there's issues there. Um, So how do you distribute the results? Because obviously a lot of the time, or historically with an engagement survey or something like that, it's annual, you know, it gets uh, sliced and diced. It's, you know, sometimes it's not so quick on the sharing of the results just because the people who are playing with the data want to keep playing with the data.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, I, and I think to your point, what is so essential now, and, and this luckily for us has always been the context that we operate in, with with obviously Workday as our backbone is, um, we do collect that data, and and our amazing team of data scientists is able to uh, you know to analyze it. But in parallel, the first and I would say most important thing we do is we distribute that data out to the point of action, which is our people leaders. And so when we uh, pivoted our um, what we call our best Workday survey or Feedback Friday. From a more traditional, uh, how do we ensure that people are having a remarkable uh, experience? When we pivoted that to include a deeper wellness, productivity, um, you know, and sense of belonging in the context of the the health crisis, um, we were able to immediately use, in our case, again, Workday technology to distribute that data via dashboards within a week. Uh, So within a week of, of collecting that data, it was so important, and I think this is just important for everyone, is to be able to distribute that data as far to the edge as possible, to the point of action. So we luckily had always had in place the infrastructure to push team results right out to the edge as long as uh, a people leader had at least three responses which provided uh, both for a sense of reliability and and appropriate confidentiality, uh, those people leaders were getting that. And in a similar way, we pivoted a series of dashboards that could let uh, our organizational leaders know, how is your organization doing compared to Workday overall? And um, having that data as quickly as possible, and in our cases, that was measured in days out to those leaders so they could take an action was absolutely essential. And I think a big part of the way we all need to operate moving forward.
0: Yeah, I think even before the cluster of crises that we uh, experienced in the early months of this year and are still going through, I think we all recognized that the writing was on the wall before all of this that we needed to become a bit more adaptable and have more, as much as we can, more information in real time to take action in in real time when it's still gonna matter. Um, Great detail on the uh, pulse survey and and your overall approach to sharing and making it, uh, getting the bang for your buck that you really want when you're gonna survey the whole workforce or survey a big portion of them every week, you ought to be doing something about it. Um, So I guess a, a couple of questions here around that. With the return to work strategy, um, or if you still have a return to work strategy for for the company, what is the? How are you looking at internal data versus external data to make that determination for your different locations around the world as a global organization?
1: Yeah, and so we, to your point, you know, it, it's important to have a uh, a mashup, if you will, and a perspective on both of those. So we're obviously taking in um, uh, data from. Johns Hopkins and importing local data relative to, uh, Corona, uh, hotspots. We're even pulling in data, as I mentioned earlier, especially for cities that are heavily reliant on, um, commuting infrastructure. Um, we're taking in data relative to even, you know, again, just cities being open. And so you've got, you know, we operate in many, many cities around the world. And so we're looking at, you know, we're looking at that data. And then to your point, we're, we're balancing that or, or combining that with employee sentiment data. What percentage of our workforce, uh, and we're very intentional about, you know, has an interest uh, or desire to return to an office versus a need relative to their work and and what that need may be and how can we help support them. So we're taking in, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, whether it's PPE, whether it's uh, elevator capacity, whether it's needs within a particular building, we're bringing all of that data into one place. We're um, making that available to, uh, to a local leadership board, to be able to look at making those decisions in a very timely manner. And then we've actually used Workday technology to create something called a passport, where we can actually put on people's mobile phone, uh, what is the status of your office, what's your personal status, um, where we may have specific requirements whether someone has to have completed a particular you know body of learning to have a, an an expectation a realistic expectation of what is required in the office or may have needed to complete some other type of attestation so we're we're taking that data both at a at a location perspective and then equally from a workforce down to the individual perspective and bringing that all together to enable individuals to you know to be successful but obviously there's no way i don't think there's a way to do that or you'd need a lot of people to do that without the technology to do that and then literally displaying for as an example our our passport on people's mobile phones when i go into the office uh, have i met those requirements so we're using that technology to do that And to your point, we're using that pulse on an ongoing basis to understand what the expectations are, what are the interests of folks uh, returned to an office. I I mean, I'll say the other thing related to that, and we feel very lucky and grateful that a large majority of our workforce feels very productive. In fact, when you look at the data very broadly, uh, productivity generally in the world is up. Uh, given a variety of things. Um, But I think we also need to be uh, cautious or, or at least stay close to understanding what's the impact on innovation, what's the impact on connectivity, what's the impact on people maybe being isolated or feeling a sense of loneliness. So you need to look across all of this data and think about it in a cohesive way.
0: Yeah. And also, with anybody who is, you know, doesn't have a family of their own or, uh, and is living alone, um, the whole crisis has really, um, hit them double whammy. Like they can't see people at work the way they used to, but then they, it's also really hard to see their friends, you know, because you can't go out of the house and meet up at a bar or get coffee or something the way you used to. Um, and I think with something like loneliness or depression or that kind of thing or any, any emotional or mental issue, it's, Sometimes harder to raise your hand and be like, uh, "Yeah, I am, I am feeling pretty cruddy right about now." Um, it's it's sometimes harder for an organization to to get a real sense of how much there really is there. It's all something that exists beneath the surface. Sometimes I think.
1: Yeah, well, and I will tell you to your point, couldn't agree more. Um, you know, overwhelmingly, the CHROs that I spend time with and sort of our HR and, and business leaders. This focus on, again, wellness, on, um, on belonging and people feeling belonging, there's a, actually a great, great new, new book out by the former Surgeon General of the U.S. Uh, uh, called Together. And Vivek does a, a wonderful job. I, I had the privilege of talking to him as he was, as he was putting that book together, uh, where he, uh, as a former U.S. Surgeon General, identified the loneliness epidemic. And so, you know, we we were on a path already relative to people feeling uh, isolated um, and maybe a, a deteriorating sense of, of belonging. And so, you know, this has this has put a lot of pressure in that space. And I would just encourage wherever possible for organizations um, to do their best, uh, their absolute best in understanding where people are feeling um, and uh, and supporting them, because um, this obviously is for many folks, you uh, you know, going to be going on for quite a while.
0: Yeah, a lot of it is going to be extended beyond what any of us thought at the beginning, for sure. Um, and I think keeping the pulse, uh, using technology to take the pulse of the people working for you, is is going to be really important. Just to uh, even from you know the dollars and cents standpoint of attrition, um, you know, even if you don't care how your employees feel, you probably don't want them leaving in droves either. So are you guys using flight risk dashboards or anything like that as part of your approach here? Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So we've actually, and thanks. It's a great question. You know, we've been looking at this for quite a while um, looking at sort of to your point, sort of what are the underlying factors uh, because we are able to uh, we have, you know, actually nearly, well, it might be small for many organizations, but we've got nearly 2 million data points as we've collected um, employee experience data from our from our workmates directly from their sentiment. Now, over the last couple of years, we can look at that. To your point, by gender, generation, geography, uh, ethnic background, career stage, function, um, so we're able to really understand what are the underlying items there. One of the things we found, obviously not as not as relevant anymore, but but not too long ago, we found that commuting time. Really had an impact that if I had a commuting time of more than, and specifically 55 minutes, um, I had to have a compromising or equally strong career value proposition for me to be at that organization. I needed to be getting. uh, I was sort of sacrificing on one hand relative to my commute time, and so I needed to be uh, have a higher expectation of what I was getting back. So, uh, you know, we're able to look at the underlying factors there. And then we very much do what we call sort of a, a culture sprint. So because we turn our survey every quarter, um, we then every quarter are able to really look at the results and say, where can we make uh, improvements? Where can we progress in supporting our workmates' uh, experience? Uh, you know, And to your point, to the other side of that, when because obviously Workday does see when people leave the organization or, or a trip, we can sort of look backwards and say, Were there signs in the data? And we typically do see that there are patterns, like you would expect, of, you know, if someone over three quarters is having a decreasing set of employee experience, there's a high probability uh, that they will leave. Again, sort of maybe obvious in retrospect, but we're able to see because of the breadth of the questions we're asking, uh, because of the types of data we can see, um, to what degree were organizational changes uh, people leader changes, um, you know, other things happening in their context that would uh, start to feed a factor that would, you know, would lead to attrition. And then we can jump on not at the individual level because we don't we don't do that. We want to maintain the confidentiality at an individual level. But when we look at broad trends, we can proactively start to address that as an organization.
0: That's excellent. Yeah, that whole focus on okay, let's look at what some factors. I mean, commute time, of course makes a ton of sense because, you know, if you're stuck in a subway or stuck on traffic and your job isn't really, you don't feel like you're really progressing or going anywhere in your career, I would imagine that would wear on somebody after a while. Um, It's funny how sometimes to advance that kind of, like, of course, people don't like it when they have a long commute, or of course, they don't like it when, you know, they have a, a manager who can't control his or her temper or any of those kinds of things. But it's, having the data there to find out, okay, how big of a factor is this in nutrition? And then also maybe identify proactively where might it be happening where we should take a look at those things closer.
1: And then what we've really done to your point, Alan, we've really, you know, approached that sort of two sides of the same coin. So we've been very intentional in looking at Uh, Our principles, our practices, and our our programs, if you will, related to that data. So it's not that one hand over here looks at the data and says, well, this is what the employee sentiment is. We've at least historically tried to build those as two sides of the same coin. And so what we're at least able to do uh, is to say, if a team is providing feedback to a people leader that uh, they're not meeting one of those factors, we actually Uh, Automatically curate content or look at programs to support those people leaders on the things they can specifically do to improve the experience of their team. So again, this is another area where I think technology is going to play a bigger element Uh, rather than in the past, as you said, over a big part of my career, I would do maybe annual or every two-year these huge employee surveys, uh, unfortunately, regress those, uh, you know, compile that data, they'd regress to some mean that wasn't really specific for individuals. We, over the last number of years, have taken quite the opposite approach. It's to say, you know, every team experience matters. And then how do we help and curate content or uh, capabilities out to that team? based on their team's unique uh, experience. And so far, we've seen uh, really positive results in that as it relates to our folks feeling that they're working at a great place to work for all and continuing to you know have a retention that we're just very grateful that our workmates feel like this is a great place to work.
0: Thanks for sounding off on that. And I guess to you know the ultimate question that we always like to ask in these conversations is summarize, if you could, for me, how you feel like, All of this work is supporting Workday, the business in, you know, both how do we keep things running smooth and uh, and keep on hitting our goals as a business now? And then also, how does this pay off in the long term for you?
1: Yeah, well, and, and it really comes back to your opening comments around just where we are you know, as a world right now, um, we at Workday have, have always sort of had as a first principle uh, from our co-founders, Dave and Anil, that happy employees lead to happy customers. And so especially when we started to see these global crises start to impact our workforce, we doubled down on that. Um, and in fact, I was talking with one of my great colleagues, uh, Ina Landman, who led and continues to lead our COVID response. and uh, And she was able to safeguard our workmates so quickly, so early, and and I asked her, I said, where did you have the crystal ball to know that the world was sort of unfolding in this way? And she said, I just leaned into our values, right? Our employee-focused value, this first principle of happy employees lead to happy customers. And as I spend time with our customers, I was with uh, a, one of our advisory board's 30 customers this morning, and they have shared that they are so grateful, that they are feeling so supported, that our workmates, because they're they healthy, first and foremost, and engaged, and we have actually seen the highest level of engagement amongst our employees, almost that we've ever seen in the last three years, we've been measuring it, that at the end of the day, this idea that if we safeguard and support our workmates, um, as we've been really intentional in doing, that they will support our customers. And, and you know, um, we love our customers. And so many of our customers are, in fact, on the front line, um, whether they're healthcare systems, uh, food supply, their supermarkets, their, you know, and so I think, I hope, I believe that that our workmates at the end of the day appreciate that we're helping and supporting, you know, 40 million workers around the world have better workdays. Um, and, you know, we've been super clear that if, if we do the right thing for, for our folks, that they'll do the right thing for our customers, you get those two things right, and it continues to, uh, you know, enable business success.
0: Well, I can't think of a better note to go out on than that. So I wanna thank you, Greg, for all your time today and for your really thoughtful answers to my questions. And I wanna make a big thank you to the people at Workday. Uh, Of course, check everything out that they've got going on at workday.com. And for all ideas related to HR, come visit the Human Capital Institute at hci.org. Don't forget to like us, rate us, and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Alan Melch.